Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to, well, I guess you could say this might be the first week of winter the meteorologists do. Claire, I don't know if you do, but Claire Zalke's with us. Claire's our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, how are you doing? I am doing okay. And uh, I don't know if I would say it's the first week of winter, but it's definitely winter. <laughs> Certainly starting to feel like it, although today is kind of nice. Uh, Robert Craig is with us. Robert is the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, how are you doing? Well, it's been an extremely long couple of weeks. End of the year is awful in the nonprofit world, but um, I, I've, I have no legitimate complaints given what many are facing in our society and our world. Yes, that is true. And um, Robert definitely mentioned it's been really busy here at Citizen Action. We're gonna actually start the show talking a little bit about that. We had an amazing fundraiser last night. Uh, we'll talk more about that here in just a minute, but just uh, further on in the show, we're gonna be joined in the next segment by Sachin Chetta uh, to discuss the state Supreme Court ruling on fair maps. Uh, also, we are going to talk about COVID. It is scary, folks. Um, I know uh, you don't want to have fear take over, but the COVID numbers are very stark here in Wisconsin, and we now have this variant. We'll talk more. Uh, we're going to close the show, though, by also talking about the COVID vaccine patent waiver. We talked about this once before. We're going to be joined by People's Actions' Ben Levinson to talk more about that. There was a meeting this week. And there just hasn't really been any serious progress on this. So we're gonna talk more about that really just huge, huge, huge problem. Uh, but before we do that, um, I wanna get both Claire and Robert's uh, reactions to the fundraiser we had last night. And uh, the reason I wanna talk about it is we had both Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin and Congressman Mark Pocanon to talk about the unique role that progressives uh, are playing in this Congress uh, broadly, but also very specifically and strategically around Build Back Better and how that is uh, very different than previous Congresses. And then, and how both Senator Baldwin on the Senate side and also Congressman Pocan very um, clearly through the House Progressive Caucus have been instrumental in that. And it was a awesome conversation with both of them, very relief very revealing about both of them um, as uh, leaders. Uh, and it was a great night. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Claire, uh, you participated. And uh, we certainly talked a little bit about some of the healthcare issues that we've been working on. But I'd be curious to get your thoughts. What was the most interesting thing you heard from the senator or the congressman uh, as it relates to healthcare uh, last night? Uh, either as it relates to Build Back Better or going forward uh, with this Congress? Well, I think the most interesting thing that I heard in general, first I'll say, is or was the conversation that Congressman Pocan had with Robert about how the Progressive Caucus developed from what was basically a kind of social club and a place for people with uh, the same ideologies as us to gather together and, um, and spend time together into what has really been a powerhouse during the Build Back Better uh, and post um uh, or, or during COVID, right, the relief bills. And 
and how they were able to stay banded together in order to guarantee that Build Back Better would, would even happen at all, because there was a time when it was very possible that we would only get the infrastructure bill. So I think uh, him describing that progression uh, from, from social club to powerhouse was, was really the most interesting uh, part of the, of the conversation for me. Robert, uh, your thoughts on what you thought was most interesting in last night's conversation? Well, I think Claire is absolutely right what he said of what Congressman Pocan, who has been kind of an unsung hero, one of the lead architects, the organizer on the inside of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which has played a quite to the chagrin of the Washington establishment, a huge role in Build Back Better and held it up for a long time held up the bipartisan bill that isn't that is not that is not nearly as good on its own in order to get leverage to pass the much larger sweeping agenda, which is the president's agenda. And he actually uh, shouted out Keith Ellison in this development as well, the wonderful attorney general of Minnesota. Um, so and in fact, Tammy Baldwin, we started with her, called out her congressman, Mark Pocan, for playing a major role in this new influence. We haven't seen anything like this in 50 years. So we need to treasure it. And we on the outside need to back them up because we had a good conversation also about how progressive caucus gets power from organized people on the outside and social groups like us, not from big money, not from the massive lobbying operations. He pointed out that there are three pharma, big pharma lobbyists for every member of Congress. A way to match that is organize people like we at Citizen Action try to do. Uh, so I, I, that's why I want to have Congressman Pocan on. And I think we're trying to educate people about movement politics and what we're trying to do to build a similar structure in Wisconsin, the state legislature, with the outside inside game. That is groups like Citizen Action and organized progressives on the inside that we have seen transform Washington, create a president who Mark Pocan's estimate was is that it's bolder than Lyndon Baines Johnson. This is the boldest reform, even the reduced Build Back Better that we've seen since the New Deal. So we really are talking about that. And, and there are others who agree with that. American Prospect editors, great mag, progressive magazine have the same assessment. So that was one big learning. Another big learning was just on where we are in the bill. Both Congressman Pocan and Senator Baldwin indicated that 95% of the bill is pre-stipulated. So they don't. They think Mansion is. It's only five percent that Mansion and Cinema could unwind. There's some disagreement on that. Are the the folks on the inside for People's Action or National Network think that Mansion is being to question what is or is not pre-stipulated? So I think there's some wiggle room there. But they both feel confident that is Pocan and Baldwin, and that Baldwin thinks they'll be through the scrub process of the Senate parliamentarian making sure this all meets Senate rules for a budget resolution, everything that came from the House and the Build Back Better Act, in time to start debate the uh, week of December 13th. So really, we could have an historic debate before Christmas, and she thinks they'll stay in session until it's done. So we may have work on, we may have votes on Christmas Eve, given how the Senate works around deadlines. Look, um, one of the things that I just want to highlight too that came up and we heard it in one of the questions from the members is all of the amazing things that are in this bill and just the challenges that they have faced around dealing with, you know, trying to people obsessing with the timeline and when, when is, when's the vote going to be and, and the price tag and getting lost in the details, right? And the important reminder 
that organizations like us, along with the Progressive Caucus and others have in terms of educating the public, we've been immersed and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We've done, geez, a dozen events around Build Back Better over the last six months and trying to educate the public uh, in that inside-outside strategy. And I was really uh, happy to hear that discussion because it's been our same analysis, right? That it's a challenge uh, because of the way the Senate process has forced us to sort of have this conversation. Uh, that being said, folks, I really want to encourage you to donate to Citizen Action. We do not do a whole lot of NPR style uh, asking for money on this podcast, but we are today. Uh, we're, uh, we'll have a link in the uh, website on SoundCloud on all to, to go and donate. But you can also just go to our website. It's very easy to go on and donate. And we really want to encourage you to donate if you do, if there's a way to leave a note, right? Podcast or something. Uh, but we really want to encourage you to support Citizen Action, the work we do. Um, we don't have commercials, right? Uh, some of the radio stations that play us may run commercials. We don't. We don't have advertising. We have you. We have our members. We have our listeners. And so I really want to encourage you to donate. Robert? I was just going to say, you know, I think we're in Wisconsin Public Radio Pledge Drive this week, and I'm a donor to them as well. But they always talk about how if you're listening to this, you enjoy the program and benefit from it. Please keep, make it possible. I'll say the same thing if you listen to Battleground Wisconsin and you're listening now, so you listen at least to some degree and enjoy it. Please help make it possible by donating. So with that, though, uh, Claire, I wanted to give you any final opportunities or thoughts on last night before we go to break. Just that I want to thank everybody who uh, came out. If you listen to this podcast and you came to our event live, I want to say thank you. We had a really great crowd, and I'm sure that the senator and the congressman uh, really appreciated having a good-sized audience for uh, their remarks. And I think it helps show these two powerhouses in Congress who we're so lucky to have representing us here in Wisconsin that they uh, should continue to work with Citizen Action, um, that we are a power broker in this state and that the progressive block in this state is behind them. And folks, Robert mentioned uh, it's an exhausting time for us as a nonprofit. We have yet another event that we'll preview for you here. Our annual meeting is next Saturday. Um, so if you're a member of Citizen Action, we hope uh, or would like to become a member, uh, please consider joining. We'll have a link to that also in the web uh, in our uh, our description on both SoundCloud, on the website, again, next Saturday at 10 a.m. Uh, but with that, folks, we're going to take a break. When we come right back, we're going to be joined by Sachin Chatta. We have had Sachin on regularly. He is not only a Citizen Action member, he helps run the Fair Elections Project and has been on regularly to update us, talk about what's been going on with the fight for fair maps here in Wisconsin, and we had a very important state Supreme Court ruling that he'll talk us, talk us through when we come right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are really fortunate to be joined by Sachin Chetta from the Fair Election Project, and we're also happy to say not only a former Citizen Action staffer, but an active member. Uh, Sachin, great to have you uh, join us. Thanks for having me, Matt and Claire and uh, Robert. Really glad to be here. Sachin, um, 
help our members. Uh, they are all by now certainly aware that the state Supreme Court had a ruling this week, uh, again, very partisan ruling that um, supported the Republican maps. T give us our listeners, take a couple minutes to tell us you know, your key takeaways as to what came out and what's next, what's really important for them to understand. And then we'll just go back and forth with the conversation about this. Sachin? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that if you if you saw the news coverage and you saw our reaction, this was a highly partisan ruling. It was an order issued by the state Supreme Court kind of indicating the parameters that they were going to use in how to determine how to go forward on redistricting. So if you recall, uh, the legislature passed a very rigged map that baked in the gerrymander from the last 10 years for the next 10 years. And the governor vetoed that and said, you know, that's not going to work. We're not going to pass that into law. And so right now we're in a situation for next year that we don't have valid constitutional district maps for the legislature or for Congress. So there's lawsuits filed in state and federal court. And what happened in the state Supreme Court is this highly partisan ruling that said that they were basically gonna do exactly what the Republicans have asked for, which is to change the current rigged map as little as possible. That's essentially what they've claimed they're going to do. Now they haven't actually implemented a new map. They've just kind of laid out some parameters. And so this process isn't over. It was definitely a setback, but it's not the end of the process. And it doesn't mean that the maps are completely rigged forever. Um, but I think what will happen next is, is they will, through the state Supreme Court, implement some sort of rigged map that will take a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months to resolve itself. And then the maps will still go to federal court. And in federal court, they will especially evaluate whether those rigged maps uh, meet the requirements of the Voting Rights Act. And I think the lawyers uh, who are fighting for fair maps do feel like we've got a good chance in federal court to make some pretty significant changes to the maps and hopefully get them to be fairer, even though it's unlikely we'll get a totally fair map for the whole state of Wisconsin. So I'm hoping you can walk me down a little bit because I feared the rigging, which we've seen of the last district and the current district legislative level would be extended to their Supreme Court, where they have very partisan players that can be counted on to create legal doctrines that benefit their side. They've created a wholly novel legal doctrine, according to Rebecca Justice Dallet in the minority in this decision, uh, that no other court has adopted. Uh, in order to justify and sanctify um, gerrymandering. And I guess my concern is uh, some changes may be made at the federal level, but we also have the rigging of the U.S. Supreme Court where they, uh, without much foundation, decided the Supreme Court has no role in partisan gerrymandering just by violation of the Voting Rights Act, which is also important, but it's not the same thing entirely. It can be, but it, 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 partisan gerrymandering is broader. So is there anything you can give me, and particularly our, our, all of our listeners around the state that's more optimistic and gets us revved up that we can organize? I know a lot of people have been trying to organize. You've been leading a lot, Sachin, and try to get a lot fairer maps. Yeah, look, I think that's a great question. I think you laid it out pretty well that we have a rigged political system and we have uh, a relentless right wing uh, movement uh, that is, you know, pretty much aligned with the Republican Party, but I think is broader than just the Republican Party that has fought for decades to take control of our democratic institutions and use them not only to advance their policy interests, but to undermine democracy itself. And that's the, 
the circumstance in which we're fighting. And so one of the things I'll say is, look, I think you have to organize. We have to register voters. We have to vote. But that's probably not enough in terms of like how we make change and whether we're organizing our workplaces through through unions or we're uh, organizing in the streets for movements. I think all of those things, you know, we need an all of the above strategy. It's not one or the other. Um, I think on maps specifically, you know, look, I, I'm I, what I'd say is I'm still optimistic long term, but long term might mean the 2021 redistricting in Wisconsin. That might mean the 2031 redistricting. I think this is going to be a long term fight. But just in the short term, we will get a map out of the state court that's likely to be very rigged. They've been very transparent about the fact in, in some ways that they intend to rig the maps. We're going to get a map out of the federal court that then will be the final maps that we use for the 2022 elections. Um, and you know, then there are going to be 2022 elections. And I think it matters whether or not you get someone who believes in democracy to be elected or reelected as the governor, as the attorney general. I think those things matter. Um, I think we'll have to see what happens in the Supreme Court over the next few years and whether there's any retirements and whether you, know, you have uh, Ron Johnson reelected to the US Senate. Um, again, you can't directly, you can gerrymander kind of the whole US Senate because there's an advantage to small uh, states that have more right-wing voters, but, but you, you, know, you can't rig a statewide election uh, the same way, at least, uh, as through gerrymandering. So we have to win races like the governor's race, and the attorney general's race, the U.S. Senate race for candidates who believe in democracy and who believe in 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 things that your members and our members care about. Um, and then, you know, I think what happens is over time, the U.S. president can get new Supreme Court members, maybe who can reevaluate the decision in Whitford and Rucho. I think especially at the state level, we will have the opportunity to organize uh, very uh, clearly for the 2023 state Supreme Court election, which will take place in April of 2023. So, you know, that's a little bit more than a year and a half from now. Um, and, and that's going to be critically, critically important because the balance of the court will be uh, uh, up for grabs. And if the balance of the court changes, right, this was a 4-3 decision, as have been so many decisions from this state Supreme Court, if the balance of the court changes and you get somebody who's more committed to the law and more committed to the Constitution than the lawless uh, right-wing uh, special interest judges that we have now, um, you could see some of these issues revisited. Uh, the, the problem, obviously, then becomes is just like, you know, we're looking at a 50-year Roe v. Wade precedent that's about to be it looks like overturned, you can never let up on, uh, off the gas. No fight is ever over forever. And that's part of you know, organizing our community and organizing uh, uh, in, in a democracy. You know, our democracy is threatened, but we still have a few levers we can push. Um, not all is lost. And I, I, I'm, hopefully I'm giving myself a pep talk while I give all of your members a pep talk that we, we really do need to keep fighting uh, before everything is truly lost. So just to summarize before, just a couple points you made that are important before we go to Claire, and that is, obviously, I was joked the governor, Walker, couldn't bring the UP into the state, so he couldn't gerrymander state elections. So governor's race and attorney general race become even more important if these are unfair maps, and then state Supreme Court race becomes all the more important. And we need to have the courage and stamina to play the long game because we're not necessarily going to get everything we want right now because of how advanced this conspiracy against democracy is. Claire. Sachin, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more about um, the, so we know that the state 
about timelines in general for, for this process. And I know that this might be a confusing question because it crosses over both the state and federal cases. So from what I'm understanding um, and what you're saying, the uh, process at the state level isn't quite finished. Um, they The courts will put out their maps sometime maybe later this month. And then you have this case going also in the federal court. And I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit confused on how that federal case could resolve itself. Would they direct new maps to be drawn? I assume they wouldn't draw maps themselves. So, so what's our timeline and the possible outcomes of these two different tracks? Yeah, I mean, it, it is not exactly parallel in the sense that it is one after the other. I think the state court process will, review, will resolve itself within a few weeks or a couple of months. Um, it could definitely go into 2022, especially with the holidays coming up in about three weeks. Um, and then I think the federal court uh, has set some trial dates and they wanna have a process to gather evidence and make a decision. They know and have indicated publicly that they understand they need to get these maps in place by March. Um, and the reason March of, uh, of 2022 is kind of the deadline for state legislative districts and federal congressional districts is because the process for deciding to run um, and then to gather signatures and get on the ballot takes place in April and May. You have to basically get onto the ballot under the state uh, statutory timeline by June 1. You have to kind of do all the paperwork and gather signatures from fellow citizens to get on the ballot. And then there's a primary election in April, and then there's a, a general election in November. So it has to be resolved by March. The federal court understands that, and they, they will get it done. They will do what they have to do to evaluate the state map um, and uh, then make a final decision about what the map looks like. However, they draw that using an expert or choosing amongst various maps that are submitted to the federal court. However they do that, they will do that uh, pretty quickly. Um, and this, this whole timeline is compressed, but everybody understands it's compressed and we just have to, to get it done and, and the courts understand they have to get it done. Well, Sachin, we really appreciate you took the time to join us today, update us, clarify a few things around the Supreme Court ruling, where we're headed next. Um, but more broadly, we wanna thank you for continuing and being involved in this fight for a number of years. We've said it before. Obviously, uh, I liked your comments connecting it. This is a long-term fight and it's much broader than just this issue. I love how you talked about really talked about building a movement. Um, and we really appreciate your uh, participation in that movement on this fight. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and leading on this fight. Thank you. Check out Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and uh, fairmapswa.com on the web and appreciate your support. And everybody keep supporting uh, Citizen Action. This is Pledge Drive uh, week, I heard earlier. <laughs> it so. is. Uh, for, for both the Fair Maps Coalition and Citizen Action, uh, let's get it done. Thanks, thanks everybody. Absolutely, folks. Feel free to support the Fair Maps Coalition. Super important, uh, important work. And of course, folks, support Citizen Action. We got a link uh, in our description. Go support us or you can just go online. It's very easy to give. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. We'd really like to thank Sachin Chetta, the previous segment. That was a great conversation about the ruling in our state Supreme Court and where we had next in the fight for democracy. But with that, 
Claire, I'm coming right back to you. Uh, we got to talk about COVID. There's so much going on. It is unfortunately not really good news. The COVID testing, uh, uh, testing, positive testing, hospitalization rates, death rates are all up. We hit records for hospitalization rates for this year, this week. We are back over 4,000 positive cases a day this week. Uh, our vaccination rates continue to not get where they need to go. And we have a new scary, scary potentially uh, variant that is now, uh, was in California yesterday and is probably all over this uh, country and all over the globe. Claire, this is a rough week uh, uh, on the COVID front. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but uh, yeah, it feels like every week is a rough week. And it's, uh, I can understand why people might feel like the pandemic is really wearing them down. And I, I certainly have moments where I feel like that. So if you feel like that, I want to tell you, you're not alone. I, I feel it too. Um, but I what I hold on to that helps me get through it is the touchstones of what works. And before we get into sort of the scary statistics, I think that's a good reminder, right? So um, this new variant, this Omicron variant, they're still analyzing it. Um, it certainly has, it, it's scary in the sense that um, it has a greater level of mutations than previous variants have had, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's deadlier, it's just more potentially more transmissible. And so the things that we do to prevent transmission are, still work, right? So high quality masks like N95 masks, I think uh, we are at a place in the United States where we should not be wearing um, cloth masks as much and expecting them to be effective against these more transmissible diseases uh, or, or variants, I should say. Um, but, but masks like good quality N95 masks are still very effective against preventing transmission, both you spreading it and you contracting it. Um, so, so upgrade your masks um, and um, vaccinations are still very effective as far as we know, again, serious illness and death. So get vaccinated, get your kids vaccinated, especially if they're in school. So, um, and, and, you know, not engaging in risky behavior, like being in a lot of bars and being in a lot of, you know, really crowded places um, without a mask or places where you have to take your mask off is still an effective way to reduce your risk. So when, when I, when I start to feel scared, I go back to my touchstones of, you know, control my behavior, wear a really good mask and, re and remember that I'm vaccinated um, and boosted. So, so before, yes, before we talk numbers, I wanted to throw that out there. You know what, that's actually very helpful just to remind everybody and everybody, if you mentioned the booster, I got my booster uh, last week. Um, there, it appears, and again, there's a lot of data still to be collected, but if you've been boosted, you, your risk, particularly of um, really serious hospitalization and death still remain very small. And, and Fauci's even suggesting that even with um, this new variant, that will likely uh, be the case. Even if there's a diminution of its overall effectiveness, it is still like the most important thing and it's, and wearing the mask, which I really appreciate you saying. Um, I think uh, in uh, the other part too that I find scary is, I think 
unfortunately so many people Claire are still unvaccinated and like is this the variant which I hear like 10 different variants or whatever just the beginning um, and we're going to talk later about the lack of vaccination rates around the world uh, related to some of the patent issues but to me like it's almost like not as less scary for myself as a, this societal and global situation we're in and and our ability to act, you know, actually contain this, uh, given where we remain with vaccination rates, how we go about our business. Uh, I guess I throw that back to either you, Claire, or Robert for your thoughts. Yeah, so I'll, I'll throw a few numbers out there just to give folks an update where Wisconsin is on vaccinations, and then we'll go to Robert for some comments. So uh, Wisconsin, um, we are at, I think it's 59% of all Wisconsinites have received at least one dose and over 50% of the population in every age group that's eligible now has received, at least at the state DHS tracks, and they haven't released um, uh, data for the, the youngest, youngest children yet. Um, but I think it's a big deal that we've, we've reached a point where 50% um, of, of every age group that's being tracked and released right now uh, has at least one dose, right? So children ages um, 12 through 15 just reached the 50% mark. And uh, I think that that that's positive, I hope. Um, it's certainly not enough. And like I said, we don't have the numbers for the really young kids yet, uh, but 59% of the state has received um, at least one dose and a little bit less than that has received both. Um, so I, I also think it's important to remember that the folks who are, um, are unvaccinated um, by choice because they're eligible, um, is uh, largely a um, whiter um, and more conservative um, population. And so um, when we when we are talking to folks about being unvaccinated, um, it's important to reach out to folks with a lot of um, empathy and um, and carefully so that um, we have the greatest chance of of crossing lines um, across geography and ideology to, to try to convince folks to get vaccinated. I'll go to Robert now. Look, um, Claire's given you some excellent advice on how to protect yourself. Um, I want to speak a little more broadly. Um, and quite frankly, you only have to protect yourself because of the social divisions we have in our society. And it needs to be understood they didn't just happen. Sometimes in the media, we have the idea, oh, there are social divisions. We lack social unity. People don't have faith in government. There's been a whole movement that has been premised on discrediting government and advancing big lies that they find useful, either for, the, for their corporate benefactors or for some other partisan political reason, like the decision that it was to the advantage of Republicans for some reason to play down the pandemic and now to basically subvert President Biden's efforts by making it worse, by continuing to push anti-vax lines and weird uh, unscientific cures that endanger their own folks, et cetera. And it's a real contrast. In the 19, early 1940s in New York, one of the traditional dread diseases came back. I'm forgetting whether it was tur tuberculosis or smallpox, one of those, right? You know, that used to kill a lot of people in the 19th century. And they managed to vaccinate the whole city in a couple of days. 
So very different age. The, the, the city comes out and the public health department and the mayor and says you should do it and people lined up. That is a very different, we're at a very different age and we have to cope with it. I think we also have to think about our own agency, right? Uh, we can complain about all the people who are following the leader. Unfortunately, it is human nature to follow the people that lead what is you consider your side. So I do think that there's, we have to have the, I would say the uh, grace to understand that we might believe a lot of things out of our leaders on, among Democrats or the left if they were lying to us. They're just not. It's not our movements right now. But if they were, if we were grown up that way, you know, uh, you know, there go but the grace of, of God, right? There go I. So there's, I think I botched that one a little, but you know what I mean. Just uh, do not assume that you're holier than thou and at a higher level than other people. That's no way to persuade them. But the second thing I would just say is, we need to lean into our own agency is, are we, that is, the whole coalition, the Democratic Party, everything from movement progressives like us, and very moderate, moderate people and even conservatives of the mansion and cinema variety, and quite frankly, Governor Evers is on the further right side of that, uh, of that spectrum in the House. Are they doing everything they can, or are they making political decisions? We've said repeatedly, we think Governor Evers could do more and city officials in Wisconsin that they're not doing, they're being done in other cities. Uh, and I think President Biden has been bold in some ways, uh, especially with the employer mandate. But really, there are other things we know that would be effective. And I know they're considering the politics and they know if they lose power, then things get worse. But really, it would make sense. We know it would make a huge difference if you couldn't get on an airplane unless you'd been fully vaccinated, just for example. So I think we need to pull all the stops. But I think we're going to talk about it with Ben Levinson, People's Action, in a little while. But by not vaccinating the rest of the world, not only are we being immoral, in other words, if you're a low-income country, you know, then your life's worth less. But we're actually harming ourselves. Why is the Omicron variant coming? Because this is running roughshod to Africa because the richer countries have not helped those countries be able to be vaccinated. They've stood with the pharmaceutical industry. So I know we're going to dig into that, Matt, but that's my lead in to we really have to hold ourselves accountable for doing everything we can and trying to deal with the sabotage from the right. But ultimately, we can't fully control that. Well, folks, we're going to talk more about it. All of that is absolutely right. It's a wonderful segue into our next segment. Um, we will talk to Ben Levinson right after we take this break. You are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, it's our version of Pledge Week, <laughs> although we have never done it before. Uh, we are encouraging you to donate to Citizen Action uh, this week if, as a podcast listener. If you enjoy what you're listening to, please donate. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin or Citizen Action. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We have been talking about COVID and the alarming rates. We're at record high rates here in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and we talked about the vaccination rates. Claire brought up 59%, sounds good, one jab, but that's still low. And it's appalling given what's been going on globally. Robert mentioned it. We are joined by Ben Levinson from People's Action. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ben, we had you on because you've been helping track and lead uh, uh, our effort nationally around this problem we have where 
we've got essentially a trade wave uh, a waiver that hasn't happened around uh, vaccine patents patents which has greatly greatly reduced the ability to get this vaccine across the globe Ben tell us more and why this is so important great to be here and just have a big fan of citizen actions work so glad to talk more about this issue that we think is like one of the most important issues that like everyone should be talking about and it's like kind of in the back pages of the news or <clears throat> every once in a while there's a flare-up but I, I feel like um, this issue around global vaccine access and, and addressing the pandemic everywhere is um, in our view one of the like really key ways to end the pandemic and so I mean, like, you know, we've all heard it since the beginning of the pandemic. No one is safe until everyone is safe. Even like the World Health Organization Director General says this. Like we, we, we've, um, there's like a, a value around global, like everyone's together, solidarity. Um, but, but truly in the way that we've addressed the problem with many aspects of the crisis, but particularly around vaccines, which are one of our, our most effective tools, we've really prioritized the interests of pharmaceutical companies and the um, like safety of people in global North countries and rich countries like the US and in Europe. And so we have seen that like in, in some countries in, in Africa and in South Asia, like the um, vaccination rates are like in the low single digits um, because all of the vaccine doses are going to rich countries. And so what we've been trying to do since the beginning, we've been talking about this since like really just, just before the vaccines emerged about a year ago, um, saying what we should do is figure out how to get more vaccines all around the world so that we can like really make real this thing that no one is safe until everyone is safe. And through a bunch of campaigning on um, uh, like across a, uh, many groups um, at the national and international level, following the leadership of India and South Africa, advocates in those countries, um, we, we, we got US government support for a waiver of intellectual property, which would allow people to make generic versions of the vaccines in um, global South countries. That was in May, we were thrilled, it was very exciting. And basically since then, nothing has happened. The administration has paid lip service, they haven't really done anything. And in some circles, they've even like, in, in like some documents we've seen, they've even sort of undermined their support for this waiver by offering countermeasures. And so what we're trying to do is get the administration to follow through and to get the rich countries, the US, Germany, other countries in the EU, the UK, to support a waiver and really be able to get vaccines produced and distributed across the world. Claire? Thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, ben I've, ben, I've been working with you on this campaign this year. And uh, so I'm really glad that we were finally getting on the podcast to talk about this effort. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what exactly the United States can do? Um, because like you said, in May, the president offered some support for, for this waiver. So um, is this something that needs to happen at the U.S. level or at the international level? And like, what specifically do we need our, our government to do to make it happen? So um, there's a couple of different things. One is that the U.S. government has supported a narrow waiver. So they've supported a waiver on vaccines specifically. But the, the governments of India and South Africa have asked for a comprehensive waiver that includes diagnostics, like different um, testing, different treatments, um, 
And so one thing the U.S. could do is support a more comprehensive waiver, support the text that the, um, um, like it's over 100 countries support this. It's not just India and South Africa, but it's led by them. Um, and that, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that, um, as we know, the U.S. government has a lot of power on the world stage. And what we could do is use our diplomatic pressure to make this happen. And I think that what we can see is that because it hasn't moved since May, it's the US government has choose to, to slow play this. And they could take this seriously, make this a priority and um, put like the full force of the US government and the US State Department to, to, make, to make this waiver possible. Um, and so, you know, that, that looks like everything, like I think Claire, you and I had participated in, a, in an action in New York challenging Angela Merkel when she came to the US like President Biden and the, the like U.S. Department of State could have pressured Angela Merkel when she came to the U.S. to support a, a waiver. Um, they didn't do that because they wanted to support um, the status quo and support Pfizer and Moderna and other pharmaceuticals that benefit from the status quo. Uh, before we go to Robert, for our listeners, uh, the TRIPS waiver for the vaccines was proposed on October 2nd, 2020. More than 4 million people have died since then. Uh, just to put a perspective of why a sense of urgency is so desperately needed and uh, America's leadership is critical. Robert, next question. And our partners in these Times Magazine, Sarah Lazar, did a really good story on this this week. I, I assume that we can create, create a link, put a link in our website to it. Really good investigative reporting and probably the, what, the most underreported story of the year, if you're nominating those since we're at the end of the year. Um, Ben, you know, uh, progressives of a certain vintage, like your single payer folks, love to compare us to Western Europe, right? And unfavorably. Well, they've been worse, right? They've been, well, the U.S. has to actually use its leverage to get through the opposition of Germany and the rest of the European Union. So that's important. At least uh, they've uh, paid lip service, which is better than the EU, which is stunning, given that the EU is now being hammered by the Omicron variant. Uh, independent of the moral nature of this, that is, regardless of whether it's in the interest of our countries, there's a human interest here. The other thing I think to bear in mind is, is that the United States played a leading role in making these trade rules in the 80s and 90s and let Big Pharma, which is fleecing all of us, uh, write these trade treats to their benefit, not the benefit of everyone else. If this was the early 1980s, there wouldn't be this issue. So we are less able to respond to a pandemic, again, because of profits from a giant, very unpopular set of corporations and their Wall Street backers. So we need to understand that apparently Wall Street, which would be greatly damaged by the economic ramifications of, of a continued pandemic, even if they don't care about the life of the 4 million people that Matt mentioned, they're just willing to continue this way and protect big pharma. So just as we've been unable to get through all of the precision drug reform we need, though some of it may get through and build back better. Nothing's been out on trip. So what is your speculation? Are the Biden administration trying to play both sides here? They kind of caved all of us on changing their position on what's called the trips waivers, but then they, their heart isn't in it, or they have other trade negotiating priorities, or they appointed people who aren't, who's hearted and into this. I don't know. Do you have a theory of what's actually going on here and where the leverage points are in the U.S. government, they're probably just, we have to pressure the White House, but I want to get your, your take on that. I mean, just like totally co-sign everything you said about um, 
Pfizer particularly had a key role in writing the TRIPS waiver negotiation into the agreement around the WTO. Um, and now they're trying to block this because it uh, upends, it threatens their profits. So just co-sign that. Um, as From what we're seeing in the administration, it seems like there's um, different factions that support the waiver and factions that don't, particularly the Commerce Department, the Secretary of State, the NSC are, are really opposing. And we definitely have an ally in the U.S. Trade Representative. And so part of our job is to strengthen um, USTR's Catherine Tai's hand and try to um, give her the ability to move um, the entire administration on this. And what's happening is because of the power of pharmaceutical lobby, they've, they've spent records amount of money trying to challenge the, the waiver. So since Catherine Tai announced support for the waiver in May, um, we've seen like a backlash. And I think right now we're seeing maybe another opening for, for um, campaigning and pressure on the waiver because clearly the pharma strategy didn't work because we have new variants. And so we're trying to figure out what's possible in the next, even the next two weeks before the end of the year to um, try to get this waiver passed. Um, and if not then, in, in the next couple of months, as soon as we can to, to try to really address this crisis. So it's a little like Congress then, just to, in other words, the Democratic Party is such a big tent, there are warring factions within it. The White House and the administration have the same issue. It seems like it's parallel to the Mansion Cinema versus Sanders problem. That's 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 right, and and um, it's uh, not a surprise that the folks who are not on our team are the ones who are the richest members of the cabinet and the ones who come out of business. So um, I think that um, it shows where their allegiances are and what we need to do to build our power to challenge them. Well, Ben, we really appreciate you coming on and enlightening us. I am not shocked to hear that the same rascals like Big Pharma who are messing with Build Back Better through cinema and all these others. It's the same actors who are getting in the way of what our people really need. Uh, and we appreciate that you are on the front lines of helping think about this, strategize and figure out a way uh, to change our current situation. And we really appreciate that and appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me and for all your work. All right, folks, that's Ben Levinson from People's Action, our national network. We're super happy that he was able to join us, even if it was about some very heavy, serious stuff. With that, though, folks, we got to wrap up this battleground, Wisconsin. We really appreciate both Sachin Chetta and Ben Levinson for joining us. Folks, please donate to us, Citizen Action. You can find a donation link in the description uh, of the podcast or at citizenactionwi.org. We'll see you next week, folks. Thank you.